Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics while providing my own U.S. political and policy angle on these different issues when it is relevant. So this week, I want to continue the theme of the 2024 presidential elections here taking place in the United States. But I kind of want to talk about how to think about it from a policy perspective and policy perspective if Donald Trump is elected president again in November of this year, which right now he is, along with current President Joe Biden, the two leading candidates. Now, before I start, it is important to acknowledge that Donald Trump has not been named the Republican nominee for president. We're still in the middle of primary seasons. He has won two primaries in New Hampshire and Iowa and a very, very strange caucus in Nevada. We are then going to be approaching South Carolina, which is actually the home state for his main competitor, Nikki Haley, who is the former governor and also, by the way, Donald Trump's UN ambassador. And then after that, there will be what's called Super Tuesday here in the United States, which is where 15 states on March 5th will all cast their votes. But there's a very good chance that Donald Trump will be essentially the nominee for the Republicans after that. Um, And so now you have to start thinking about, so, okay, so if Donald Trump's the presidential candidate, what does it mean for Donald Trump as president? We saw what he did in his first four years. And this would be the first time in well over 100 years that you would have a president win a second term in a non-consecutive term. My own view is that Donald Trump essentially cares about three policy areas. So whatever you think of Donald Trump and all the controversies around him, there are three issues he seems like he's cared about for a long time. One is immigration. Two is trade. And three to a lesser, a little lesser extent, are alliances. He's negative on all three of those issues, or he has skepticism around all of them. Now, he'll also have to take on other issues as a president, whether it's tax reform or trying to think about regulation issues, or just, by the way, selecting personnel. A lot of people always say personnel is policy. Anyway, I want to talk about all those issues, but I thought that it would be a good idea to have someone join me to discuss it. And so that person is Yuka Hayashi. Yuka is a journalist who's focused on trade and economic security. She's been a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and the Dow Jones Newswires for over three decades. She's been based in Washington, New York, and Tokyo. Her areas of coverage include economic policy, national security, finance, and most recently, trade and industrial policy. So Yuka, welcome to Current Account. Thank you for joining me. And good luck trying to figure out how to talk about Donald Trump. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay, so I'm going to start with something that you know a lot about, which is trade policy, which clearly is one of Donald Trump's key things. In fact, in some respects, one of the only specific policy issues that he has talked about during the campaign is trade policy. In fact, he's not really running a typical campaign where he talks about policy. But on trade policy, the area that he talked a lot about when he ran for president back in 2016 And as president himself, the one area that he has said that he is going to do something about is he said, I am going to have a 10% tariff across the board for all countries for imports into the United States. Now, that may be exactly what he's thinking about. It may change slightly, but that is basically what his idea. So, Yuga, 
First of all, the question I sometimes get when I talk to people is, is that legally feasible? How do you do that? I mean, can he do that as president? Does he need Congress? How do you see that just from a kind of feasibility standpoint? Yes. So before we go into that, let me say that Trump has actually floated several ideas for his trade policy for the potential second term. And the 10% universal baseline tariff is one of them. And it's the one that has attracted the most attention because it's just so eye-catching. But other ideas include removing China's normal trade relations with the U.S., which effectively means sharp increases in tariffs on a number of products. He's also floated the idea of maybe imposing a 60% tariff on Chinese imports. And one that he formally proposed in his campaign literature is what he calls reciprocal tariff, or he has called it eye for eye tariff where if a trading partner has a higher tariff on the U.S. good, we are going to raise the U.S. tariff to match that level. And he wants to do that universally as well. So there are a number of ideas that he has floated, and the 10% one is the most interesting one, I guess. Okay. And so is it, can he just go and do this unilaterally? Does he need anything? Or is it like, I'm president, and next day, 10% tariff? It's not clear. People seem to have different views. I've spoken with people who thought that this was just completely illegal. I mean, basically, Congress is the one who has the authority to impose tariffs in this country. There are tools that the president can use, like the 301 tariff, that the uh, president can use to impose tariffs on a country that clearly has violated or uh, conducted unfair trade practices. Or the 232 tariffs that Trump used during his first term to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum imported from various countries. And the reason for that, those tariffs were national security. But other than that, Congress really needs to make the decision to impose tariffs. So this 10% tariff idea, it's much, much broader than, you know, those 301 tariffs or 232 tariffs. So it's really not clear how he's going to do it. That said, some experts have ideas. One is that Trump is going to use sort of wartime emergency power to do something unusual. There is a law, I guess, called International Emergency Economic Power Act, IEEPA. And this was used in a number of occasions in the past, like after 9-11, President Bush then used it to rein in terrorist groups. And President Trump himself used it a number of times during his first term to deal with rather technical issues, but he actually threatened to use this power to ban all U.S. business activities in China and also to ban all imports from Mexico to deal with the immigration issue. So the use of this emergency power has been on his mind for a long time. Okay, so you're talking about what is called AIPA. AIPA, as you said, has been used as a national security issue in order to implement all the sanctions. It's also actually how for years the United States implemented export controls. And of course, I guess you would have to declare that it is a national emergency that we are importing, well, anything, any product, not just something like steel, but, you know, bicycles or 
basketballs or underwear. And so all of those would have to be kind of considered to be a national security issue or an emergency, which has a possibility, of course, of undermining the IEPA authority from a judicial standpoint. So I guess I see the trying the idea of it, but it also could be undermined by its own weight. But anyway, interesting theory. It does suggest that there's some clarity problems as to whether or not you need to go to Congress. Obviously, some people, I think former U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer thinks you don't have to, but I do know that some people would think you would. All right, let's just say he does it. Whether it is the 10% tariffs across the board, 60% tariffs on Chinese goods, does any of this have any economic or fiscal consequences here in the United States? That's something that a lot of people started to look at. But we can look at the impact of the tariffs from his first term. And the results have been mixed. There has been a clear impact on trade figures. You know, Trump always wanted to decrease U.S.'s trade deficit, and that, that has been happening. Earlier this week, uh, we saw the trade numbers for 2023. And the trade deficit fell to, I believe, the lowest level in more than a decade. And there have clearly been impact on some industries. Take a look at the steel industry. It was a huge beneficiary of the Trump trade policy. And in that industry, domestic output has increased. Jobs have increased, albeit at a pretty steep cost to the U.S. taxpayers. But on the other hand, there are a number of data suggesting that the uh, impact was very limited. There has been very little impact on inflation, despite the concerns that a lot of people had that the tariffs are going to increase prices of imported goods. That did not happen. I mean, of course, we went through this period of steep inflation, and it's difficult to kind of separate the impact of tariffs from all the other things. But economists, they seem to think that the impact on the inflation is limited. And what were the impact on jobs? You know, Trump said that, you know, these tariffs are going to help create jobs in the U.S. Did it happen? There was a very interesting research that came out a few weeks ago done by uh, MIT professor David Otter and his team. They looked at counties across the country that were impacted by tariffs. And in the counties, that got a lot of trade protection thanks to the Trump policy. There were very few increases in jobs. On the other hand, if you look at the counties that were hit by retaliatory tariffs by other countries in response to the Trump tariffs, there were clearly job losses. So on the net basis, their conclusion was that the uh, Trump tariffs were negative for the U.S. jobs. But this research also looked at the political impact. And in these counties that were affected by these tariffs, there was clearly an increase in support for Trump and the Republicans from 2016 to 2020. So the conclusion from that research is the tariffs impact on the economy was limited or slightly negative, but clearly there was a political gain for the Trump camp. Right. And I think that that type of analysis, which I know, I think I've seen the report you're talking about, is consistent with other analysis that's been done in the last few years by groups like the Fed or parts of the Fed as other academics and other international groups. So 
it's an interesting point, which is that there is a political positive maybe on the domestic level, but at the same time, uh, there's some economic problems that seem to pop up. Obviously, the inflation issue is a little bit different because, of course, it was never an across-the-board tariff. So if you did an across-the-board tariff, theoretically, that would have an inflationary impact, but maybe not. And I guess maybe it could actually have a positive fiscal stance. It would go against some theories on trade, but it's still kind of interesting. An aspect that I would like to try to hit upon is if you do a tariff on countries, whether they are allies or adversaries, you would think that it is not always looked at positively by those countries. You mentioned the idea of the problem of retaliation. How do you see this maybe impacting the U.S. standing in the world or maybe more specifically even like U.S.-China issues? You know, if you talk to officials from foreign countries, they all are deeply, deeply worried about what would happen to the U.S. trade policy if Trump comes back. They're not going to talk about it loudly, but, you know, privately, that, that, that is huge, huge concern that these people are thinking about. So Trump's main target is, of course, China. But he has like long held very kind of mixed feeling toward countries like Japan, Mexico, Germany. So a lot of countries are concerned that they may also be hit by Trump tariffs if he comes back. And one like issue that a lot of these like big trading partners are worried about is whether Trump is going to impose tariffs on auto imports. Toward the end of his first term, he started sort of floating uh, the idea of using the 232 national security tariff to tax auto imports. So that's on the mind of a lot of policymakers. In terms of U.S.-China relations, you know, there's no question that the relationship is going to become even rougher than now. But Trump can be interesting in that while confronting countries like China, he also wants to make deals, right? So during his first term, he confronted China, but at the same time, he managed to sign this huge trade deal with China and managed to get China to increase imports of some certain items and post tariffs on others. Um, So there was that aspect. And that was something that President Biden wasn't able to do in terms of traditional trade policy. Okay, Yuka, that's interesting. Now, we should probably think about what does this all mean for Europe? So economic relationship between the U.S. and Europe was very chilly during Trump's era. And after he left, the Biden administration and the European Union, you know, spent a lot of time trying to get rid of the tariffs on European steel and aluminum that Trump imposed. And they have a temporary arrangement, but they have not been able to resolve it a few years later. When Trump comes back, he could easily reimpose those tariffs. And Europeans are ready to reimpose their retaliatory tariffs if that happens. The price of that will be paid by some U.S. businesses, you know, like, you know, whiskey makers in Tennessee, Harley Davidson motorcycle company. Right. Which goes to your point, which is that if you were doing an overall cost and benefit analysis on the trade policies, there are a fair amount of costs that are out there, even if maybe the benefit seems to be largely pockets of political benefit for Donald Trump, which is interesting. And also, I mean, what we haven't discussed is, so we 
we just discussed the impact of the tariffs from the first term, but for the second term, he is talking about doubling down. You know, the Trump China tariff from the first term was 25% or less, but now he's floated the idea of a 60% tariffs on Chinese imports and a 10% universal tariffs on all imports. I mean, no one has done that. So we don't know what the impact will be. I mean, these are much bigger tariffs. So the impact on the economy should be bigger, but no one knows how big it's going to be. Right. So Clay, I talked about Trump's trade policy, but you know, trade is just you know, one corner of the broad economic policy of, of his administration. What do you see coming? What's going to happen to areas, issues that impact American businesses, things like, you know, tax policy, deregulation? So I think that's a good question. First on tax issues. So in the first term, Donald Trump passed, along with the Republican Congress, a fairly significant tax reform, particularly on the corporate side, but also on individuals. Unlike trade policy or some of the issues around immigration or alliances, I'm not convinced that this is something that Donald Trump cares too much about. It's more traditional Republican policy. And so my own view is that he will want to get the tax reforms that he did expire in 2025 or at the end of 2025. So he would want to get them pushed out to the future. And I think that he would rely on Congress to do that. On regulation, I think that there's a few different angles there. There is the Biden administration has taken a much tougher line on probably a few areas than the Trump administration did. Regulation of the energy sector, a very different theory on antitrust issues, and regulation of financial sector or financial markets. If the Trump administration repeats what they did in 2000, their first term, they would be much more deregulatory in the first area, energy, and the third area, financial sector. The antitrust issues was just a very different way of doing things under the Biden administration. My guess is the Trump administration would go back to the way kind of actually antitrust policy has been done for a long time. Now, again, I'm not convinced that that is one of Trump's most important policies. It's more traditional Republican policy as opposed to the way trade is done or immigration or alliances. And so I think that that's where he would follow more kind of the traditional Republican line than as opposed to the Donald Trump line. Is it possible that in terms of deregulation, you know, we have a very different composition of the Supreme Court this time. Is it possible that trend toward deregulation is going to be accelerated because of the more sort of anti-regulation, pro-business type of composition of the Supreme Court? It's a good question. It's a good point. I mean, I think that it's very possible. It'll be interesting because one of the ideas of regulation or deregulation in, is you should be doing cost-benefit analysis as you're going through those steps. So one of the criticisms of the Biden administration from Republicans is that they don't do that. Now, I could say the same thing about the Trump administration on how they think about trade policy. How do you do your cost-benefit analysis? From a regulatory standpoint, if you're doing your deregulation, you should also be doing cost-benefit analysis. As for how the Supreme Court would act, 
they have taken a different tack than had been the case in the past, as we saw recently in the last couple of years. So I think you're right. I think the phrase pushing on an open door is more apropos here. But as you said, when we were talking about trade, I guess we'll see. All right, maybe let's do one last question to kind of our out question, which is to think about personnel. So Donald Trump wins. He's got to put people in. I know there's a lot of concerns about what exactly he's going to do on the national security side, because most of his former national security advisors and uh, attorney generals and secretaries of defense have essentially abandoned him. But on the international economic policy or economic policy, you haven't seen that same thing. So the key areas are the Treasury Department, the U.S. Trade Representative, some of the financial regulatory agencies like the SEC and the FDIC, and as well as the Federal Reserve. So what are maybe some of your thoughts on personnel under a new Trump administration? So again, here, Trump seems to have a pretty clear idea on who will be leading his trade policy. And that is going to be the same guy who uh, led his first term trade policy, uh, Bob Lighthizer. He published a book sort of explaining his views on trade policy last year, which you can see is going to be blueprint for the second term trade policy for Trump. So that's one thing that we we know. But other than that, I haven't heard much about who's going to be leading some of the other areas. And I'm very curious about what's going to happen to the Federal Reserve. What do you think, Clay? So in the Federal Reserve, what's interesting in some respects is that the chair, Jay Powell, and the vice chair, Michael Barr, their terms as chair and vice chair, not as governors, but as chair and vice chair, are up in 2026. So I would assume there is not any chance that Donald Trump would reappoint Jay Powell. In fact, I think he's actually even said that. And he would probably not reappoint Michael Barr as the vice chair. But I don't think there's any other Fed governors that are coming due until 2026. So his first year in office, Fed policy or Fed personnel policy doesn't change outside of somebody deciding, I don't want to be part of this and quits or obviously a health issue. So I think that Fed policy really, in some respects, becomes an issue late in 2025 when they start thinking about how to deal with 2026. Well, Yuka, thank you so much for your expertise and your knowledge on this topic. It was great talking with you. And obviously, we have a long way to go before any of the stuff we discussed happens. But thank you for making it interesting. So we have a lot to think about as well. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. So now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from my conversation with Yuka. Two things I'm looking forward to and my one sports fact. So my three main takeaways were, if Donald Trump becomes president, there is going to be a refocus again on trade. That's something he cares a lot about. It is going to be protectionist. There'll be more tariffs and it will be even more than he did in his first term. Second, those issues, plus some of his thoughts on alliances and international agreements, is bound to have international implications, including problems with allies. We talked a little bit about Europe, a little bit about Japan, a little bit about Mexico, as well as potentially problems with adversaries, China. 
And third, he has these views, former President Trump does, but he will also follow some areas that are probably more typical conservative or Republican policies here in the United States, which is a lesser tax rate and less regulation on the overall economy. The two things I'm looking forward to are probably neither thing is really related to the policies that Donald Trump would follow, but instead two things that are going to likely occur before the election. The first is Super Tuesday, which is March 5th, because it's likely at that point that we'll have a much, much better idea if we are in for a much longer haul in the Republican campaign to fight off against Joe Biden or that Donald Trump has essentially won. And the second thing is the court cases that Donald Trump has to face. He still faces many different court cases. The Supreme Court was actually weighing in on one part of it this week, and the district court in Washington, D.C. was weighing in on a very different part. Whether or not these court cases will come about before our elections here in the United States, I don't know. Um, I have my own thoughts, but I'm not a lawyer, so they're probably not worth much. But I will be looking forward to seeing how those play out. And now my one sports fact. I felt like I had to talk about the Super Bowl, even though I try not to inundate people with my love of football. But I'm recording this on Friday before Super Bowl 58, where the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers will play off against each other. So both of these teams have an opportunity to have some exciting historical things happen. With the Kansas City win, they will join the Pittsburgh Steelers, the New England Patriots, and the Dallas Cowboys as being the only teams that have won three Super Bowls in five years. That kind of starts making them a dynasty. It'll also be the first time a team has won back-to-back Super Bowls, Kansas City won it last year, since the New England Patriots won in 2004. If San Francisco wins, it'll be the first time they have won a Super Bowl in 30 years. And they will join the two most successful teams, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New England Patriots, in Super Bowl history because it'll be the sixth time that they have won the Super Bowl. But if you don't like history so much, we could also talk about conspiracies. And I'm not talking about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, although everybody would love me to probably do that. Instead, let's talk about the fact that the last time Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers played each other was the last time that Donald Trump and Joe Biden faced off against each other. It was in 2020. In that time, the Chiefs beat the 49ers. I guess the only thing I really hope for is that we don't have a repeat of 2020, which was when the COVID pandemic hit the United States and many countries around the world. Anyway, I'm looking forward to a very good Super Bowl. And when this is posted, somebody, one of those two teams will have won. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. Again, I want to thank my guest, Yuka Hayashi, for her very great insights and interesting thoughts on a potential Donald Trump presidency. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.